Good morning, good morning, good morning. And uh, happy new year from me. I, don't, I think the cutoff is okay if, as long as you haven't seen the person. I haven't seen all of you. Hope you have enjoyed your first few weeks of the year. Um, I turned 42 this week, so <laughs> I didn't expect that, but thank you. I suppose it's worthy of a round of applause to last that long. Um, I hope you're doing well, though. It's been a good week. God is faithful. It's great to be uh, together here um, this morning, just enjoying him speaking to us in the time of prayer before the meeting. Clearly, there are themes of God's speaking to us this morning in our worship time, just reminding us of his holiness. I loved that, that uh, 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 tongue that was brought in the interpretation, just that phrase, uh, let my life speak holy, holy, holy. Um, that's what we want our lives to do, reflect the holiness of God, the love of God. This morning, um, I'm going to speak to you along the lines of, uh, of that sort of stuff. But just, just if you weren't here last week, let me encourage you, go online and, and find uh, the message from last week. Martin Segal did serve us so well, didn't he? Um, it was a real blessing. Uh, I was so encouraged by it. And it's just nice to hear a different voice as well, isn't it? Um, lo- uh, next week, uh, in terms of different voices, we have a guest speaker called Adrian Holloway. Anyone heard Adrian before? A really gifted speaker, and he is here to do the Alpha launch. Uh, we heard about Alpha just now. He was going to kind of launch us. Uh, so he's a fantastic communicator, particularly to those who have got questions about uh, Jesus. And so if you're thinking, I always wait for sort of Christmas or Easter to invite friends, because then I know that we'll be you know, re-aiming it. We hope that every week you can bring friends, actually, because we want to speak the gospel every week. But next, next week would be a really beneficial week to bring somebody who you may have chatted to at work about faith or, or in your football team or whatever, and just say, look, if you want to hear a bit more, this guy is coming. Uh, used to be a sports journalist. Uh, he's got very interesting anecdotes and stories, and uh, he's a really good communicator. So I'd encourage you to, to invite people along, and I'm looking forward to it myself. Um, Today, we're going to look at uh, being rooted and established in love. Uh, There's a phrase in the New Testament that Paul speaks to the church in Ephesus, and we'll come back to a bit later, that God wants us to be people who are rooted, anchored in his love, and established, like a plant that is established uh, and uh, and fruitful in, in his love. And just on that note, when I was praying this morning, I did feel that God uh, just brought something to my heart. So I feel there are many people here this morning who, through pain and, uh, and difficulty and discouragement, through things being uh, uh, um, yeah, just difficult for you, you know that you have pulled back in faith. Uh, you know that you have stopped sort of investing your life in God's faithfulness. And uh, I had a kind of picture of... Uh, you know, just a desert wilderness. And it's like you've said to yourself, I'm not going to put a plant down in that land because I just don't trust that the sun will shine on it and I don't trust that the rain will come. It's just not going to produce anything. And I felt God reminded me of the picture and story of Jesus with Peter when Peter has been fishing all night and hasn't caught anything. And he's discouraged. And Jesus says, hey, go out and put your nets down again. Put them on the other side. And Peter's the fisherman out of the two of them. I think I know what I'm doing, and it's not getting me anywhere. And Jesus says, no, go and put your net out. And he says, because you say so, I will. And the nets are full to overflowing. I feel God would say to many of you today, 
you haven't put your net out in a long time because of discouragement, because of cynicism that's got in there. And you feel, I'm hiding my faith now. I'm still kind of holding on, but I'm not putting my nets out. I feel God would say to you today, I want to fill your nets. I want to fill your nets. And so I really want to uh, pray for you in a moment, but I want to encourage you to listen today. I feel God wants to remind us that he wants us rooted and established in his love. And uh, I'm going to speak to us. A lot of what I'm speaking about today comes from this fantastic book called um, Gospel Fluency. I would recommend if you want to uh, look further into this. But also, uh, as a church, uh, this term, and actually throughout the, the existence of this church, uh, we will always be looking to go deeper into the gospel of Jesus. I want to, I want to show you a few photos to start with here uh, today. Incredible photos. There's a, a new space telescope called the James Webb Space Telescope that was created in 2022. And last year, some of the highlights of the pictures it took, can we have a look at the first one? Hopefully it's uh, just, just absolutely awesome pictures. This is uh, apparently a stellar nursery. Uh, the very youngest stars are still ensconced in dark regions across the top and down the right. Infant stars announce themselves with jets of hydrogen molecules that appear as streaks of long wavelength infrared light, colored red in this depiction, that result when new stars develop. Isn't that just stunning? Have a look at the second one. This is glowing columns, a bracket which seems to be a young star that is destined to grow to eventually rival our own sun in its size. The jets are about... 1,000 light years from Earth. Glorious pictures. Third one, um, even in a brief 12-minute exposure with uh, the James Webb cameras, there are signs that it was a cloudy day in at least a few places on the giant icy Uranus. That's Uranus. A clear, clear picture. Just uh, the ability to look with new lenses, new science, this is apparently the view of the planet's North Pole. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And then fourth, part of the Orion Nebula, known as Orion Bar, dense molecular clouds envelop newborn stars. And I almost just want to say, did the band want to come back up? <laughs> Let's just worship this God. Just awesome pictures. In 1995, a scientist used the Hubble telescope, which was at the time, I think, the most powerful telescope in the world, to point at a tiny area, a tiny patch of space, which was black. And other scientists said, don't waste time. Don't waste time on that. There's nothing there. He said, I want to see if there's anything there. So he put a 100-hour exposure into this tiny, tiny space. And this picture is what came back. As it looked into the depths of space, in a tiny patch of sky, they found a menagerie of never-seen-before distant galaxies of a bewildering variety, shapes and colors. And it's just astounding. Why, why am I showing you pictures of, of deep space? Well, I want, I want to illustrate that sometimes we think we've seen it all. And sometimes we think, yeah, I get it. I know. I know. I've looked. I've seen. But others might say, don't waste your time looking. But God wants to say, I want, you to, I want you to look. I want you to see what I've done that you think you know. I want you to gaze at it. I want you to find new depths. I want you to see it with new, new clarity. 
what I've already accomplished. You know, God's kindness in giving us things like uh, communion is so that we can say again, this is what he's done. This is what he's accomplished. I want you to look at it again. I want you to, I want you to breathe it in. I want you to take time on this and see the wonders. See the awesome majesty of what I've accomplished for you to step into. Of what I've accomplished that you might know the new realms of my love. Yeah, I know it. I know Jesus died. Simple, I know. It is simple, but, but gaze at it. Gaze at it and you'll be stunned. You'll be mystified. As you see, for, for me, the son, the prince of heaven, on a, on a disgusting cross, for me. Why me? I know what I've done. I know that I've, I've stuck two fingers up at him. I know I would probably be in the crowd spitting at him, mocking him. But he did it for me. And he wants you to know, just gaze, gaze. If you, if you want to know my love for you, if you want to be rooted in it and established in it, don't move on. Don't move on quickly. Get into deeper understanding, deeper knowledge of my love for you. We're going to read from Ephesians 4 uh, and and. We will often look at these passages, they're very, very uh, uh, well known by us, but again, we want to look deeper, we want to gaze at these. This is God's desire for his people, that he would establish a people with gifts, that those gifts would help a people to be established in something very particular. We're going to read from verses 11 to 15. If you've got your Bibles, it may be worth just leaving it open at that as well as I speak. It says this, And he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Let me just pray on the back of that. Father God, we, we, we want to just bring our lives before you, the one who has died and risen, so that new life would come. You're making new creations. You're making all things new. And Father, I pray for us in the room today who have, who have got too familiar and too content with the old. Remind us again today, no, I've made new for you. I've come that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. I love you with an everlasting love. I pray, Father, help us to receive and to believe. Lord, we don't strain to accomplish what only you can accomplish. We pray this morning, help us to receive in faith. Help us to hear with ears of faith this morning that trajectories would change, that lives would change, that peace would come into, into anxiousness, that joy would come where there's been depression and pain, that faith would come in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, we're going to look, just, just recognize that we are all people who've, who struggle with unbelief. You know the story where, where Jesus says to them, to them uh, where a man says to Jesus, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. 
And if we're honest, we can all find ourselves in that place. You may have been a believer for 80 years. You may have been a believer for a week. And you may not yet be a believer. And you know, yeah, I don't believe. But there's, there's an element of us all dealing with unbelief. If you say, no, I'm a, I'm a believer, I'm, I'm strong in faith, it will still come out at times that you will fall back into unbelief. Perhaps it looks like this for you. Your emotions are where you make your decisions. Perhaps you find yourself to be insecure at times. We all will find ourselves uh, not as secure as we thought we were. And in our insecurities, that maybe we're not loved, we need to project an identity uh, that we think is lovable. Perhaps we, we find ourselves defensive. And we think, why am I being so defensive here? What, what do I not want exposed? Or maybe we're combative because we assume other people are against us. We're just not secure. We need to grasp at security. Or perhaps it's fear. And you fear the worst happening. And I think fear is a huge problem. And we're encouraged to fear in our culture. But the people of God are not supposed to be people of fear. We're supposed to be people of faith. We recognize, no, my God is greater. My God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. I don't need to be fearful. I'm, I'm in faith that one has gone before me who is, who is good. Maybe it's pride. You, you think, I, I get to particular moments where I think, how dare they speak to me like that? I will not be seen like that. I will not have people think that of me. And pride can take over. And, and maybe it's anger. When something that you think you deserve has been withheld from you. And you're not sure how else to respond other than anger just bursts forward. We're all unbelievers at certain times. We all have places in our lives, spaces where we don't believe God. Times and instances where we don't trust his word. And we don't believe that what he accomplished in Jesus speaks into the right now. It deals with this spat I'm having, all this frustration I'm, I'm having, all this, this pain that I've had, a disappointment that I'm going through. It, it, the, the personal work of Jesus speaks right into those things. But we don't believe that. We don't believe his word is true or may be sufficient. And maybe you think, yeah, I do, I do believe. But we don't, I don't think any of us are, are, are arrogant enough to think I believe in proportion with how worthy is he is of my belief. I think we will get to heaven one day and we will see him in all of his glory and we will think, why did I not believe more? Why did I not step into more? When we see him for who he is, even our greatest faith on earth will think, is that all the faith I had? Look at him. He's glorious. So we all have this battle where we think, I, I live a life of faith and yet I have to put my flesh to death. I have to put my old life to death. We slip in and out of believing God's word and we see our failures and flaws. So we, we may hear some small criticism or, or some constructive feedback and we can easily put an interpretation on it that reveals I'm insecure. I, I'm fearful. I'm proud. It, they occupy places in our hearts that we thought we'd given to Jesus. I thought I'd given that to Jesus. Why am I, why am I so stirred up about it? It becomes apparent that a guard has come up. We've retreated to self-protection, self-righteousness, self-promotion, self-esteem, or self-loathing. And we slip in and out of believing 
God's word about us and trusting in his work for us. We're a little bit like this football fan who, uh, who's not quite sure where his loyalties lie. He's got his Arsenal hat on, his Spurs scarf on, his Chelsea top on, he's got his Man United coat on, and he's holding his Man City top. What's going on with this kid? And yet we can find ourselves like that. Whatever takes my fancy in the moment, that's where my loyalties lie. I'm not quite sure. Depends what's going on. I thought you'd given your life to Jesus. Yeah, but at that moment, I needed other help. I needed something else. We don't realize it, but, but we may say we belong to Jesus, but we, we go to other teams we think we need. But the truth is, the truth in Christ is that the holy, righteous Son of God died to make you a new creation, new loyalty. You're his. You're made in him. He died to pay for sins that you could never pay for, to change your rebellious heart to one that is forgiven and therefore at peace in him. He's changed you from a sinner to a saint. He's changed you from guilty and shameful to righteous and free. That's what's happened. That's why we, we drink of the wine that was spilled. Not hoping, I hope one day. No, we're reminded. It's happened. I'm, I'm taking part in what's happened. That's when we see people get baptized. They're joining with what Christ has done. What he has accomplished. It's mine in him. And I've risen to new life in him. It's what I have done. As last year, a, a, a funny moment happened in another uh, football incident. Uh, a Man United, former Man United player called Tedon Menji, he forgot that he wasn't still a Man United player. He'd been sold, and when he went back to play against Man United, he went into the home changing room. He forgot, I'm not, I, I, I don't play for you anywhere to go back to the away changing rooms. We can do that sometimes. You don't play for them anymore. You're not there anymore. You've been given a new life. We slip, we forget. And this is true at varying levels for everyone in this room. It's common to hear people who have been in church for years roll their eyes at the thought, at the thought of talking of the gospel again. We're talking about the gospel again. I know the gospel, I've known it for years. As if they're being offered baby milk when they want meat. I'm not a baby anymore. But as we looked at the awesome splendor of space, as you look deeper... Think, oh, my eyes have been opened anew. And with my eyes being opened, new life has come. And where I've seen other Christians at such peace, perhaps, or the promises of peace in the Bible that I've never known, I realize it's because I thought I knew what I don't really know. And there's more to step into. There's a huge difference between knowing the basics of the gospel and receiving the gospel, believing it for every aspect of your life. Paul, Paul actually teaches like this. If you look at the style and the way that Paul teaches in the New Testament, he teaches Christians and he preaches the gospel. See, the gospel is not just for Alpha. It's not just for those who are seeking. It's for all of us. He's not just, when, he, when you hear his prayers, he's not just praying as we might do. God, would you send more believers? Would you, would you help our Alpha to explode? No, usually his prayers are, uh, that there will be increasing revelation by the Holy Spirit of all that is already theirs in Christ Jesus. That's actually his desire, that believers would recognize all that is available to them. You, you may be a Christian already, but hardly realize all that God has done for you 
in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word. Galatians 2, he, he return, returning to their trying to accomplish their own righteousness, he corrects them, says, you're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel. In Romans 15, he says, I myself I'm satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all the knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I need to remind you again of what I've already told you, because there's depth and new life. New discovery in it. Colossians 1.21. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has reconciled by his body of flesh, by his death, in order that to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And Paul says about himself in Galatians 2.20. The life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's, that's Paul's de decision that he has made. The life I live now is in the flesh, but I'm not living it in the flesh. I'm living it in faith. That's my desire. That's my decision. That's the line I've drawn. And you may be someone who said, yeah, I, I made the decision years ago, maybe when I was six or seven. And ever since then, I've been on the fence. Sometimes, yeah, God, you're great, but often back to the flesh. Maybe it's just been a, a bad year, and you think, yeah, to be honest, I've been relying on the flesh. And God's just, I think he would say to you today, have you made a decision for me? Because there's life for you. I want to fill your nets. I, wanna, I want you to step into the life that I have for you. See, the Galatians had started in faith in Jesus, but they were pulled around by fear and insecurity and had therefore put their hope in other things to make them right. We need to be right. I need to be at peace. You want to find peace? You often find it actually, you know, the world says happiness, the pursuit of happiness. The Bible doesn't talk so much about the pursuit of happiness. It does talk about the pursuit of peace. So your heart would be at peace. You'd be united with God. That actually you'd be peaceful when it's tough. Be peaceful when you're at the top of a mountain. There's peace to be found in God. They wanted to be found right. And they started to strive for it in other ways. Or justified. Redeemed. Justified. Am I, is, there, is there value in me? Is my life worthwhile? And so we search for it in places. But Jesus has justified you. They want to be confident. They want to be healthy. And Paul is calling them back to an awareness that the good news of Jesus, the gospel, is for all of life. It has a defining say in everything, whether you eat or drink, Paul says. Do it for the glory of God. If you're a slave or free, if you've got a terrible boss, or if you're a millionaire, if you have a hard marriage, if someone wrongly accuses you, the life I now live, Paul says, whatever that looks like, and believe me, Paul's life was more difficult than yours. 
I live by faith in the person and work of Jesus. He's made his decision. I'm not going to sit on the fence. The life I now live, I live for Jesus in faith. As Jesus, and Jesus promised that this life, that type of life, is, is life in its fullness. It's life in peace. It's life in abundance. As Christians, this is what we are growing in, in anticipation of an eternity with Jesus. A life marked out by faith in Jesus in all areas. <clears throat> Give you a personal example. Uh, we've grown to a church of several hundred Praise God, it's a wonderful thing. And I oversee our pastoral care. And you can imagine hundreds of people, different things come up all the time. Now you can uh, imagine that that can be uh, quite overwhelming at times. I I can be tempted to respond in so many different ways. Tempted to bury my head in the sand. Tempted to despair in thinking that I need to bring salvation to a situation that I'm incapable of bringing salvation to. Tempted to, uh, to just ignore or walk away or fear. But just in recent weeks, there have been things that have come up that I have to admit, I didn't know what to do. And in those moments, I have a choice to make. Do I stoically just take it on myself to make sure there is some resolution, even if I know I'm incapable of bringing it? Or do I shrink back in fear? Or... Do I live a life by faith, remembering Jesus promised to be faithful? He promised to be near. He promised to provide. He promised to give wisdom. He promised to restore and never to leave me or forsake me. Which is it? And when fear comes and asks, but how do you know he will be faithful? How do you know he'll be there? I I, I look to the cross How could he give of himself and then not help me? How could he, the king of heaven, die? Go right to the end of the race and cross the finish line that he was called to do. That that all of us deserved. Upon him. What a song. The punishment was given. And then say, oh, but I'm not helping you with that. No, if, if he wouldn't spare his own son, how would he not with him give us all things? So I can be confident. A life of faith caused me not only to make wiser choices, but to sleep soundly and to feel lighthearted, even when quite heavy things are going on. Even excited to see how's God going to move? How's he going to come in in this situation? And I can honestly say that he brings life into pastoral situations where my lack of faith would just bring nothing. It would bring worse than nothing. If I just trooped on and said, come on, I've got to help people. No, rely on him. I can be at peace and we can see him move in situations. There's choices to make when we hit the rubber hits the road. And this is the fruit of faith. It's not just in church work. Okay, I'm talking about pastoral work. It's not just in church work. It's remembering the gospel when there are bills that come that could cause fear. It's remembering the gospel in social situations that would usually cause anxiety. It's when we may feel exposed and vulnerable and be tempted to read other people's words or actions as the deciding factor for whether we're able to have any peace or joy that week. 
It's when someone drives terribly on the road and swears at you and accuses you of bad driving. You get intimidated. Do I crumble and fall apart? Do I scream and shout back in self-righteousness? A life of faith in the work of Jesus shapes even these things. We don't feel a need to justify ourselves as those who stand justified. We don't feel a need to bow to fear if we believe, my God is greater. You see, he came to give us hearts of flesh, hearts that are receptive to him and believe him and receive his love to make us new creations. So we struggle with unbelief, but God's plan for us is that we move from unbelief more and more to belief. He is worthy. But we grow more and more into the likeness of his son. It's a daily black battle for me to hold fast to the gospel. Jeff van der Stelt says in this book, we need to know how to address the struggles of life and the everyday activities we engage in with what is true of Jesus, the truths of what he accomplished with his life, death, and resurrection, and as a result, what is true of us as we put our faith in him. Speaking the truth in love. How do we speak the truth in love. We move on to what it says in Ephesians 4 that we read earlier. Because God's desire for every one of us who are his own is to grow up into maturity. And for some of us, people who are immature like me, I don't even like that word immaturity. Uh, maturity sometimes. It makes me think of someone who's got no sense of humor. I'm mature. That's not what he's talking about. Okay? He means into the likeness of Jesus who the Bible says had more joy than anyone around him, even though he knew he was going to the cross, even though he knew that his his foolish disciples asking him foolish questions all the time, exasperating, he's got joy. He's got joy because he's, he's depending on the Father. He's mature in his faith in the Father. And one of the central ways he's ordained for this to happen is through his people speaking the truth in love to each other. What does speaking the truth in love mean? Mostly we think it means just saying a difficult thing that needs to be said in a nice way. You got really bad breath. I'm just speaking the truth in love. (laughs) Or you sang really out of tune. You know, I love you enough to tell you. And yeah, we do want to speak truthfully in love. But Paul is actually talking about something quite different. He goes on in verse 21, if you've still got your Bible open, to clarify that. The truth is in Jesus. Speaking the truth in love for Paul means to speak what is true about the person and work of Jesus into one another's lives. It means we need to learn to speak the gospel to one another. We need to, as we just heard Anna share with us, to preach the gospel to ourselves and preach the gospel to one another, to have it on the tip of our tongues. If we're growing, going to grow up into the life that God has for us, into Christ-likeness, we need to hear the truths of Jesus, think the truths of Jesus, and speak the truths of Jesus. Most of the time when a brother or sister in Christ is struggling with a problem, we're tempted to just think without our gospel lenses on. If we're not alert to it, if we're not awake to it, we just speak worldly wisdom. We don't give people the best thing we have. We give practical advice. If it's finances, we talk about budgeting. If it's relationships, we talk about communicating, communication techniques. If, if someone is struggling with doubt, we just say, keep believing. Keep believing and it will get better. And we might even tell them, pray, keep praying, keep reading your Bible. But if we're not careful, 
Even those good things, they, they avoid, they sidestep Jesus. We could bring each other to Jesus. We want to bring them not to religious practices as a substitute for receiving the finished work of Jesus. For receiving the love of Jesus, which actually will set them free. Which actually will bring them to a place of knowing, I'm so loved that actually I can trust. I can trust this Savior. I can trust this one. Jesus brought this to the religious leaders of his day. He said in John chapter 5, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures. They testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. Life is staring at you in the face. I'm the love of God sent for you. And yet you're putting this between us. It's possible to do that. Now, I want to encourage you to read your Bibles. Absolutely. But to find Christ in them, to know him in them. Pray, pray to enjoy relationship with him. Thank God when you pray, thank you for what you have done. And then gaze at it in your prayer life. Like we're gazing at the stars earlier. Just thank him, thank you that you went to the cross for me. Thank you that you've taken all of my sin away. Thank you that you made a place, as we heard in the worship time, for me to come into the holy of holies. Where, where it used to be that only one person could come once a year and even they would be terrified. Now I get, to, I get to walk in confidently, boldly approaching the throne of grace. Thank you. Thank you. You come into, I'm going to stare at what you have done and I'm going to let it hit me in new ways. So study the Bible. Pray. They're wonderful things to do. Apply wisdom for financial planning and healthy relationships and other areas of life. But it is possible to go to those things in place of Jesus. So as Christians, we need to grow to think about what the gospel has to say about our finances, about relationships, about fears and worries. If we speak the truths of Jesus into these things, we'll grow up in every way with Jesus and therefore into the likeness, likeness of Jesus. Consider marriage. Consider marriage. What does our flesh say about marriage and love? What does the world say about marriage and love? It says that marriage is for you and for your own desires to be fulfilled. And when they aren't, you can get angry. And when they aren't, you can get sulky. And when they aren't, you can point the finger and maybe just walk away. Because my desires weren't being fulfilled. The world says that love is about desire. And my desires flitter around. So therefore can't blame me if my love flitters around. Most marriage problems that I help people with coming from slipping into that mindset. The strongest and happiest marriages are the ones where giving of yourself without keeping tabs on how well the other person is giving of themselves is apparent. Not only do those marriages glorify God, but they also please the spouse and they bring the most personal joy. It's not about me. It's about giving. It's about choosing to glorify God. Jesus teaches us that the best marriages are self-giving and not self-serving. One John says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life. Love is not just desires and feelings that come and go like wind and waves. We heard about earlier. Not to be just tossed around, blown around by the wind and the waves. No, love is a choice. 
We choose to sacrifice, to give of ourselves. Choosing another, standing by the commitment I've made. As we said, I love you, Lord. As we said, my faith is in you. I want to draw a line. As Paul said, the life I live is a life of faith. I want to draw a line. It's the same with love. I chose to love. I draw a line. I'm not saying on my wedding day all these vows and then saying tomorrow I'll think about whether I meant that or not. I want to stand before God. And he wants us to take our vows seriously before him as well. Marriage becomes in that context a wonderful garden where the fruit of the gospel can grow together. Actually, he's working on both of us together as we, as we give to one another, as we don't keep tabs. And we don't think, I'm not getting. And Jesus' desire is that the world would look upon his bride, the church, and see us reflecting his pure, holy, selfless, patient love because we've genuinely received and experienced it ourselves and been changed by it. How on earth can you love a spouse that you feel, I don't get the love I thought I'd get from them? Well, as a believer, you can be overwhelmed with another love that gives you resources. I think, I am so loved. I can love. I can give. Jesus wants us to, the world to look at his bride and say, look how they love. They must be so loved. They must be loved by an incredible God. We reflect who he is. This is why Paul prays for people, uh, God's people, like he does in Ephesians 3. He says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He wants them to know that Christ dwells in them. It's not just a religion. No, Christ dwells in you. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know his love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I want you to gaze at the stars. I want you to keep taking it in. There's more. There's more. I thought I'd come to the end. There's more. I want you to know the height, the length, the depth, the breadth, that you may be rooted, not blown around, and established with fruit that comes out of this love that is lavished upon you in Christ Jesus. He wants the church to know great confidence in God's love, wonderful receiving and acceptance of it, faith in it, joy in it, not just head knowledge. He wants to surpass knowledge. Did you see that? surpass knowledge not just knowledge i want you to know the love of god surpassing knowledge he wants your heart and life to be filled with god's love to be established in it to grasp a hold he says i want you to grasp it yeah i know about it i read it in sunday school no have you grasped it have you grasped the love of god in jesus christ that's the words he's using convinced of his love so that we're not squabbling around and fighting for ourselves I'm a sinner. I'm saved by grace. I'm so loved. Why am I fighting for myself? No, we look like him. We smell like him. We, we sound and feel like him as we are gazing at him. You may be someone who uh, has a bit of a stoic heart of service. In fact, I know there are some of you. <laughs> and you just serve and serve. And, and you march on like a martyr killing yourself to be a good Christian. I've got to be a good Christian. I've got to be a good Christian. I've got to do this. Probably exhausted, probably not very happy inside. 
listen, that's not how God wants it to be. That is not God's plan for you. And you won't serve well. And you won't love well if your motive is, I've got to be a good Christian. You'll burn out because you'll never find peace. Am I good enough? Am I a good Christian? No, you won't know. Paul's desire and Jesus' desire is that by faith you receive so much love from Jesus in the gospel to the extent that you start to display him. You start to reflect him. You start to overflow with that love. The people don't look at you and think, wow, what a hard worker. Look at how she's killing herself for Jesus. But they look at you and say, wow, such peace, such joy, confidence in her Lord. He must be glorious. That's what we want to display. I'm at peace. I'm at peace. Come follow my Jesus. Not striving. I've got to be a good Christian. No, I'm loved. I'm so loved. That's not to say that some won't be martyrs. But thank God for martyrs who don't kill themselves trying to keep God happy. But rather go to their deaths at peace and confident that they are safer and more loved than they would have ever dared imagine. There's stories of martyrs who have been burned at the stake singing hymns. That's not just, I hope this is good enough. That's, I know him. I know he's got me. I'm going to be with him in minutes. That's peace that surpasses understanding of the world. So we want to grow as a people who know, understand, and speak the truths of Jesus so that our lives reflect him more and more year by year. Just finally, kind of come on to this phrase that this man uses in his book here. So helpful, gospel fluency. Many of us, we learned a foreign language in school, right? Or learned, you know. I remember my French oral GCSE, it was painful. I think my teacher was like trying to give me the answers. Just say something. It's like, oh man. And now I go to France on holiday at times and I'm embarrassed by how pathetic my French is. And in my sort of lazy English arrogance, I'm like, well, why don't you learn English? You know, um, which most of them have, but it's just a shame. Um, the ability to communicate is, is poor when I go on holiday. Uh, with, with French people. I can, I can speak little phrases here and there. And what do I get? I get looks of confusion, looks of frustration, or just indifference. Uh, and, and, and two people can't get very far by speaking different languages at each other. What most novices do is learn a few phrases to get them by. Bonjour. Parlez-vous anglais? That would help. Je m'appelle Tim. Uh, où sont les toilettes? Uh, Es-tu de la bière? That's about all you need. But it's not really a conversation, is it? It's not a conversation. It's bits of information or very specific questions. The reality is that many Christians share the gospel like this. We've got a few snippets and phrases that we learned, maybe as children. To re- we learn to repeat them. That someone else has taught us, um, but really, we may not really understand them ourselves. Uh, that's what Paul's saying. I want you to understand. I want you to be drenched in the gospel. I want you to be drenched in the love of God. I want you to, in, to envelop you. I want you to be rooted and established in the gospel, in the love of God, not just know a few phrases. People listening back to those people, you know, we go on the uh, streets and perhaps you know, shout a few phrases, uh, of, of evangelism 
to people. And we get the same puzzled expressions. We get the same mixed levels of patience or indifference. Because the questions the Christian is answering is not the question that that person was really even asking. Why would someone need to die for my sins? How does blood forgive sins? What, what even is sin? Why does it really matter what I've done? Why does a man who lived 2,000 years ago make any difference to me? But, but we go with what we learned, you know, the, the, the early things, rather than going with, he's changed my life, rather than speaking the truth in love. A bit like a Brit abroad, we just say it slower and louder. Say the same thing again and again. And the real problem is that we're not really fluent in the gospel. We haven't really got established in it. Fluency in a language is when you've moved from trying to translate an unfamiliar language into a familiar one to interpreting all of life through the new language. Oh, Tom's very good at languages. You went to Mexico for six months, pretty much learned Spanish. That's pretty impressive. I wouldn't be able to pick it up that quickly. But what makes a difference is, is actually being immersed immersed in a culture where this is what we do. This is how we speak. This is how we think. And, and what we need to be as Christians is, is immersed in the gospel. Gospel fluent. The gospel needs to become our native tongue. We then see the world differently. Everything is processed differently. It's on the tip of our tongue. So you can learn a language in a class and you need you need to. You need to learn the basics. But becoming fluent is most easily done by being immersed in the culture, in a community that speaks it and practices it regularly. Now, I've loved hearing stories of how some of the people who have been recently baptized uh, have been in life group situations, small group situations, and just been actually amazed by what they're learning as they understand new depths of the gospel. Wow, is that, I'd never understood that before. I've literally heard stories about that from, from people in our youth. It's wonderful to think, as they understand more of the gospel, oh, goodness, God's opening new avenues of joy and peace in their lives. But the grace of God in Jesus Christ is deep and wide. In Psalm 18, it says, He brought us into a wide and spacious place. He rescued us because he delighted us. There is more. There's more for you. There's more for us as we, as we want to become a, a culture, a community here who, who speak the gospel. It's on the tip of our tongue. That's what we share with one another. We want to bring Jesus to one another and trust in him together. We're a church determined to grow into maturity and receive life in all its fullness. So one thing that we're doing this term, and as I said before, I trust we will be doing for the rest of our existence, uh, is we're, we're going to be pushing into this. And in our midweek groups, which I'm really, really excited to tell you, we have 40 groups open today that are available to you across, uh, I don't know if you can get the map up actually, um, across the, um, the town. So look, we've got down in Felixstowe, the other side, uh, the southeast, southwest, sorry, and southeast. And then we've got up as high as almost the top of the map. Rendlesham got there. Woodbridge got lots of people out there. We've got, we've got groups all over. If you want to just go to the next one, which is a bit more zoomed in. All over the town, we've got groups of people who are going to be going through a book called uh, Gospel in Life by a fantastic teacher called Tim Keller. Uh, and the, the tagline there, Grace Changes Everything, an eight-session course, where we're going to, as a church, push more into this where he would teach us so helpfully, what is the gospel? What are the implications of it? How is grace able to change what we've been talking about today? My marriage, my life, the way I respond to things, my fear, my peace. 
How does the gospel do this for me that my life can change? One of the phrases that Tim Keller says is this. says, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. It is inaccurate to think the gospel is what saves non-Christians. And then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to Bible principles. It's more accurate to say that we're saved by believing the gospel and then we're transformed in every part of our minds, hearts and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. And I'm also really excited to tell you that in a few weeks' time we're going to be starting to go through as a church John's gospel on Sunday mornings. We're going to go through this this year the gospel of John together, just seeing the love of Jesus poured out upon people. God's love given to us. Are you excited for that? Father God, we, we know that we are often unbelievers. We know we slip back into flesh. And yet, Lord, you've brought us life in Jesus. Life in all its goodness, all its fullness. Father, we've still got so much to enjoy, receive, and step into. I pray for my brothers and sisters in here today. They would, they would recognize this is not about striving This is about receiving and believing. And that they would just find over the next days, weeks, years, goodness me, my life has changed. Goodness me, he's better. He's better. I gaze at him sometimes just for days and just am overwhelmed. Father God, would you stir up this church, Lord, that we would reflect the love of God. We wouldn't try to stir it up. We would reflect Because we are all so overwhelmed with your love. Thank you, Jesus.